Okay, um, people in California could tell you right now that there is really not much more that is uh, more greatly unsettling than having the earth move underneath your feet. Um, when terra firma suddenly becomes terra not so firma, all bets are off. We don't like to be unsettled, do we? We like to have some basic stuff that you can count on without even thinking about. A roof over our heads, car that starts, political parties that hate each other, <laughs> patriots in the Super Bowl, some things never change, they never change, until they do. Some things never change until they do. Faith Quakes is about the disruptions of life, the ones that have the potential to shake our faith. We don't like Faith Quakes, but they come and there is little to no predicting as to when they will come. My mentor in ministry told me many, many, many years ago, he said these words, the next phone call can change your life. It's true. So I want to be real clear on the message this morning. It is not just about how to get back to being as happy as you can, as fast as you can, when the quakes of life come, when something bad happens. Because loss is something that needs to be set right. It's not... It's not just, well, the Bible talks about it as something that absolutely needs to be set right by God. And the Bible's word for it is this word redeemed. And the Bible tells us that God is going to do that someday. That day will come when God sets all things right. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow. But the day will come when God sets all things ultimately right. But until that day, we need to find a way to choose life in a world that's battered by the quakes of loss. Sooner or later, that quake is going to hit every single life, friends. Maybe you love somebody and they die. Or maybe that person hurts you and the relationship dies. For some of you, this quake involves a family that you, the family that you grew up with and wounded you deeply. And for some, it involved a marriage that has turned out to be nothing like what you would hope. Maybe the marriage ended in unthinkable pain. For some, it's something physical. For some, it's, it's just a life that has turned out to be disappointing. Maybe you went to a doctor who told you some news, and the health and the life that you have always taken for granted is suddenly very, very fragile. Brothers, it involves some kind of pain with a child. It's devastating to you. Maybe it's a death in a dream. Faithquakes, the storms of life, will hit everybody who walks through this troubled world. And there's some, there's some good news in God's word. Jesus speaks in John chapter 16, and he says these words. In this world, you will have troubles. Well, that's not good news. That's not even news. But he doesn't stop there. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, he says, for I have overcome the world. We're going to look at what that means today. So in the time we've got this morning, I want to walk through five questions that human beings have been asking for a really long time. And then we can look together at what the Bible says about, uh, about loss and suffering and pain, living through faith quakes. And the first question I want to pose is one that might come up before any other question is asked. And it comes frequently to those people who suffer a loss. And a lot of you have wrestled with it. Maybe you're wrestling with it right now. And the first 
question is, why me? Why me? Why am I the one going through this? Was I singled out somehow? Am I being punished somehow? Did I do something? Why me? Well, sometimes I do bring suffering on myself. Uh, let me just see a, a show of hands here. Anybody in this room, how many, have, at one time in your life, got a speeding ticket? At one time? Where's my real high, waving around a little bit? This is a fast church. <laughs> well, the, the follow-up question to that is, how many have ever broken the speed limit, but you did not get the ticket that you could have got? I already knew the answer to that question. I watched you drive out of the question. So there are some sufferings that we bring upon ourselves. If we eat poorly, smoke, sit around, do nothing, no exercise, we are likely to have health problems. Abusive and harsh people are likely to end up lonely. I may bring some suffering upon myself, but sometimes the deepest faith quakes involve suffering that comes for no apparent reason whatsoever. And part of why this wounds us so much is that we live with this illusion of control. We think like this, if I could just figure it out and be smart, clever, strong enough, good enough, I'll escape hardship. If I get every seatbelt and airbag of life secured just right, then I can make life accident-proof, loss-proof, suffering-proof, right? Nope. Nope. Out of the blue, sometimes disease or disaster or disappointment just comes, and then you realize the truth. And the truth is, on this planet, life is incredibly fragile, even for the best, the smartest, and the strongest of us. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said in chapter 40 of his book, he said, all flesh is like the grass. The days are like a flower in the field. You know what he's saying? He's saying the wind blows over it, and it's gone. It's gone. When it's standing there, it thinks it has so much control, and it's so firmly and deeply rooted but then comes a drought, then comes a blade, then comes a frost, and it's just gone. And life is that way. A guy by the name of Jerry Sitzer wrote a book about loss, and one day he describes, he was driving his car, and a drunk driver plowed into him head on. And in an instant, and through no fault of his own, he lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter. Three generations in an instant. And he replayed this scene a thousand times in his mind. What if I left ten seconds earlier? What if I had gone a different route? How can this happen? And he talks about the terror of randomness and what seemed like such unfairness. And he wrote that he discovered over time that sometimes you may never know why. You can spend a whole life in that question never gets answered. And then one day, another question struck him. And that question was, in the face of suffering and loss, why not me? Not why me. Why not me? In other words, how can I assume that my life will not have any suffering or hurt? Am I a better person than someone born to a starving family in the South Sudan? What kind of colossal ego would assume that I'm somehow exempt? That's crazy. And he wrote that gradually he realized the more important question was, how will I respond to this? 
Whatever it is that happens, how do I respond to this? How am I supposed to respond to deep loss when the, the quakes of life take place? Well, I want to start by saying what the Bible does not say to do. There's often a lot of confusion about this as people try to understand God and try to understand faith. When you go through a faith quake, the Bible does not say to pretend that it doesn't hurt. A lot of us grew up being taught that we ought to act like stuff doesn't bother us, doesn't hurt us, and that's a sign of strength. And we men can struggle with this. And in churches sometimes, people kind of get credit for being spiritual if something catastrophic happens, and they take it in stride and keep moving on as if it doesn't bother them. And there could be a pressure not to grieve, and we kind of play it like it's a game. When I was growing up, uh, I'd be the smallest of the six kids in the back of the station wagon, and we would get restless uh, as we sat back there. Brother Tim and Sister Eileen are here, and they can verify. <laughs> and on these long trips, we would ask the question that kids often ask on long trips, and that is, are, are we there, there yet? yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? We would lament on the length of the trip and how we were too hungry or too hot or too cold or the horrible injustice of your sister's foot touching your side of the floor. <laughs> and you know, on trips like that, I can remember mom saying, I've got a wonderful idea. Why don't we play the quiet game? The quiet game. You know how the quiet game is played? One guess. Yeah, shut up. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. That's, that's the game. It's a simple game for simple children. And in the quiet game, you know how you win? Whoever stays quiet the longest is the winner. Mom said, it's a great game. You're going to love this game. She got a lot of mileage out of that stupid game. Turns out she's the one that loved that game. Else did. Now, here's the truth. In the car with kids is not the only time the quiet game gets played. Even in the church, sometimes we encourage somehow. We encourage people to play this quiet game by pretending it doesn't hurt by showing how strong they are through silence. How you doing? Fine. How you doing? Fine. I'm fine. And then people sometimes escape their pain by just staying real busy, watching too much TV, plunging themselves into work, falling into addictive behaviors or numbing behaviors, maybe just spending lots of money all the time. People sometimes think that being a good Christian means going through big losses and not grieving as if you could hydroplane over suffering. I don't know where that idea comes from, but I'll tell you one place it does not come from. It doesn't come from the Bible. You know, what might be the most popular book in the whole Bible is the book of Psalms. There's 150 of them, and they are poems, songs, prayers to God that express a heart. Some of them express praise, some of them express thanksgiving. But you know what the most common kind of psalm is? called a psalm of lament. A psalm of lament. The most frequent ones, like this. <coughs> Why, God? God, how long? God, where are you? Why have you hidden your face from me, God? I mean, read through the book of Psalms sometimes. Some of you need to start that today. Just read all the way through the book of Psalms. It'll take you a little while. But you'll see what honesty before God is like. And there's another book in the Bible called the Book of Lamentations. You think that's a cheery little book? Well, you'll be wrong. Here's, here's the deal. The God of the Bible is a very, very big God who is not threatened in the least by people expressing their anger or grief over her. 
Some of you have played the quiet game way too long. And you've got losses that you've never mourned. Tears that you've never shed. You need to stop running and face the pain. Face the sadness. David the psalmist sure did. Just a couple of quick blurbs out of the psalms. In Psalm 6, he says these words, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. Then in Psalm 22, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. That's just brutal honesty. And God can take it. God can take it. Healing begins with honesty. So, maybe you need to take a step to deal with some of the sadness and pain that you've been avoiding. Maybe find someone around you that you can trust. Someone here, maybe. That you can share your heart with. Pray together with. Maybe bring God's healing. Maybe, maybe there's some here that need to go away for a chunk of time today and just pour out your heart to God. Find a way to do it. Make yourself do it if you've never done it before. It'll be good, and God will meet you there. You know, often people are so isolated by their grief. So maybe someday you need to make a phone call or write a note, buy a gift for someone. Talk to another person that you know about how they're really doing and don't leave until they tell you. We often don't realize the kind of difference that can make in somebody's life. In Romans 12 in the Bible, the Apostle Paul says these interesting words. He says, mourn with those who mourn. It's interesting to me what he doesn't say there. doesn't say give advice to those who mourn. Give a theological explanation to those who mourn about why they mourn. Just says mourn with those who mourn. Doesn't say go tell them it's not so bad. Don't tell them it could be worse. It says mourn with those who mourn. You know, some of us are, are familiar with the Old Testament book of Job. Uh, a man who lost everything and suffered in ways that we can't even relate to. And in Job chapter 2, it shows us the response of his friends to this loss. Here's what it says. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust <coughs> into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. That's in Job chapter 2. You know, usually when you go visit somebody who's in bad condition, go visit somebody in the hospital or something like that, you try to cheer them up. You try to tell them it's not so bad. Have you ever been so sick or in such bad shape that someone came to visit you and as soon as they saw you, they burst into tears? That's rough. This is what happens to Job. They're so, they're so devastated, there's no use in even pretending. I can remember when I was 17 years old, I was in a horrible car accident and that. Uh, I had bled so much internally I wasn't supposed to live. Uh, it turns out that I had ruptured my spleen and in emergency surgery, they took it out of 100 pieces. And I, I, I had bled so much they didn't think I made it. Um, so, you know, spleen removal, you can live from that. But uh, I was in high school at the time and I was out of town. And so the word got back to the high school. And they made an announcement over the, the intercom that I had been in a car accident. and. They said that I had my spine removed. <laughs> <laughs> Not my spleen, my spine. So all my 
friends are coming up, drive up an hour to come visit me in the hospital. All of these athletes from the basketball team, the golf team, and one of my friends. And they're in the, in the hospital room, cowering in the back corner, and having no idea what to say because they think they have my spine room. And they're like, dude, sorry you're a jellyfish fan. But yeah. They had no idea how to respond to this whole thing. But then, okay, back to Job here. It says that those that came to visit Job, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights silently. How weird is that? Seven days and nights silently saying nothing. It's so awful. Just imagine sitting with someone seven days and seven nights. We're going to do that right now. So everybody just quiet. We're going to clean your calendars. Seven days and seven nights. We do that for a few seconds and we start getting antsy. Imagine seven days and nights. Now that was such a powerful thing that actually became a part of Jewish life. To this day, in Jewish tradition, they will speak of sitting Shiva, which literally means sitting sevens. Friends will come to be with one who mourns over the course of a week, spend time with them. And then in the New Testament, Paul comes in with these words in Romans. He says, mourn with those who mourn. Again, what does he not say? Doesn't say fix them. Doesn't say tell them it's going to be fine. And say, give lots of wise advice. He says, mourn with them. Mourn with them. Little Katie was watching her grandpa from across the room. And he had just lost his wife of 55 years. And he was so disoriented and sad. He just sat there looking out the window. And Katie's watching this. And finally, she just walks over, crawls up on his lap, and sits on his lap for a long time. Later on, Katie's mom uh, pulls her aside and says, I saw you with Grandpa earlier. What did you say to him? And she said, nothing. I just helped him cry. That's holy. That's holy. There's another question that gets wrestled with by people that are going through mourning and loss. And this question is, how do I protect myself? From loss. How do I protect myself? Because when you've been through a loss that hurts, you will reach a point of choice eventually in that healing process. You'll reach a little choice. Because there's going to be a part of you that says, I don't want to go through this kind of pain again. I don't want to go through this. If I give my heart to another, he or she might reject me. They might die. If I pour out my life for a child, they might run away. They might disappoint me. I get myself to a dream, the dream might turn off. I might fail. I don't want to take that kind of risk again. How can I protect myself from loss? The short answer to this is that you cannot in this world. You can't. People sometimes think that being a Christian somehow enables you to escape and get a free pass from suffering in this world. That is not what Jesus taught. We read this earlier. In this world, you will have troubles. You can choose to love, which means to risk, means to risk hurt. Or you can choose to be safe, but you die a little bit every day when you do that. Great writer C.S. Lewis, he experienced a faith quake very, very early in life. When he was only nine years old, his mom died. 
And after that, he tended to arrange his life and his relationships in such a way to where he would never have to risk that kind of hurt again. And Lewis eventually became a great Christian, a brilliant writer, and a great uh, inspiration to many. But he led a very, very careful life he did. When he was in his late 50s, remember, he'd been real careful his whole life. By the time he gets to his late 50s, the oddest thing happened. He met a woman, and in spite of being afraid of being hurt, he went ahead and he married her. Not long after that, she developed a terminal disease. And it was in remission for a while. Then it was a little bit of a roller coaster, but she, she died. She died. While he was in the midst of that pain, this brilliant Christian man wrote these words. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. In that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change your heart. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable impenetrable and irredeemable. Brad, some of you in this room have been hurt really badly and you're really, really afraid of being hurt again. So you've closed up your heart and you refuse to love, you're afraid to dream, you avoid friendship, you flee risk, and you isolate yourself. And that's the way to death. That's the path to death. For some, it's time to choose life again and to open up your heart again. That brings us to the next question. It's one of the deepest questions that a human being can ask in this world of loss and hurt. And the question is, where is God? Where is God? In the midst of human pain and suffering and in the death and darkness that's a curse on this world, where is God? I'll be frank, I don't have any easy answers to this, because there's a lot that I don't understand. Some of you think that maybe the existence of pain and suffering in the world means that there's no God. That there can't be a God. They can't reconcile pain and suffering with God. I want to say a word about that to you. People wonder sometimes, couldn't God have created a different kind of world that just doesn't have pain and suffering? Where everything just kind of goes according to plan? So every day, God would kind of write a script for what people would say and do, and it, life would just go according to that script. That's how things would run. Now you think about what that kind of world would be like. Anybody ever see a movie a while back called The Stepford Wives? You remember what you saw. In this movie, it was about this wealthy community, and there's this couple that moves into the, to the neighborhood. The wife was kind of a feisty character, and she saw the oddest thing. So from, seemingly from the husband's perspective, all the wives were perfect. They were quiet, and they cheerfully lived to cook and clean and make life wonderful for their husbands, and there was never any conflict. And new wives would come into the little town, and each one was changed. And this happened to this woman's best friend. And to her horror, she found out that they were no longer real people. They were replaced with robots, and the real people were just done away with. Here's what I'm thinking. Men, I mean, 
Would any of you really and honestly be interested in roboticized wives who have no mind or will of their own, whose only interest is to serve you and prepare your meals more enticingly, to just inject life into your physical relationship and never argue at all? They have no original thoughts, no soul contribution whatsoever, but they just make you the center of their world. I mean, is that what men want? Really? There's a very right answer to this question. Yes <laughs> or no? No! It's not what men want. You know, God could have made a step-free world. With no hurt, no suffering, no conflict. He could have created robots who were obedient in every detail. But, but, God is so filled with love that he wanted persons. Because only with persons can there be freely expressed, lavish love. So in all of his power and strength, God chose to live in himself and gave to us the ability to choose. And inevitably that means we are free to choose and we are free to choose to disobey as well as to obey. So if parents want to, they can neglect their children rather than love them. The rich could steal from the poor. Instead of befriending one another, nations can go to war with one another. And the Bible teaches us clearly that the fall, the fall, the coming of sin, the choice of disobedience, unleashed forces of death and pain and suffering into our world. It was the fall. It was free will. It was choice. Because God loves us so much, he gave us that choice. So we, we need to be really, really clear about God's heart in this whole thing. People sometimes misunderstand and think about God as this cruel character who sends out pain, a tornado or an accident that skips one house and hits another. The Bible does not speak about death as the tool of God. It talks about it as the enemy of God. God is unalterably and eternally opposed to it and will destroy it in the end. It says it clearly in Revelation. So no matter what you may hear in our day, death is not a natural part of life. Death is not part of God's original plan, and it's not his eternal purpose for human beings. Death is unnatural. All you have to do is look at the body of a person that's been dead for a couple of weeks, and you know this is not God's highest and best in the creation that he loves. So where is God? Where is God? The Bible tells us that God is with those who suffer. He's with us. This is the message of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus took upon himself more than just our guilt and sin. He took our pain and suffering as well. In the Bible, Jesus is referred to as the man of sorrows. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief that talks about him. Think about that. Of all the gods that human minds have ever worshipped, only the God of the Bible is the God who suffers with and for the people he loves so much. doesn't end there. We all know what happened next. Yeah, he suffered and died, but he didn't stay dead. He wouldn't stay dead. And by coming back to life, he took death to the mat and he pinned it. And he now shares his resurrection power with us. That's our God. That's our God. So even though we humans 
We sometimes shake our fist at God, accusing him of things that we ourselves are guilty of. He never gives up on us. Never. <laughs> He's with us. And he loves us. Some of the most beautiful words ever written come in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this in chapter 13. I'm going to read this from the message translation. Here's what it says. We don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly, just as he knows us. But for now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. This is the takeaway, friends. Listen close. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. And the best of these three. Repeat that last bit and that's too good. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. You got some stuff to take home with you today. Let this, let this go deep into the soil of your heart. And do what God's prompting you to do today. So you need to get away and just pour your heart out to God. Some of you need to be there for a friend. And some need to just soak up these three phrases. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love extravagantly. I want you to bow your hands and pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You get accused so often of not being good. But you're good. Lord, I pray we can take that away today. That you are good. There's a lot of crap that goes on in this world that's not good. I know that. But God, you are good. And the day will come when you'll send it all right. But until that day, Lord, help us to trust steadily in you and to hope unswervingly and to love extravagantly. And would you help us do this, we pray. In Jesus' name.